0: day on against the grain. Do Americans have a bunker mentality? What if, as Emily Ray argues, bunkering is baked into U.S. politics? I'm C.S. The Sonoma State University professor joins me to discuss doomsday prepping and the privatization of responsibility, coming right up. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. According to Emily Ray, the state of perpetual near-disaster of the nuclear era has seamlessly flowed into the state of perpetual near-disaster of the climate change era. The threat of Cold War nuclear attack spurred many Americans to buy and build shelters. The threat of destructive climate events keeps the bunker market humming today. Emily Ray sees parallels between how doomsday prepping was framed during the Cold War and how prepping and bunkering play out today. Is prepping a collective activity or an individualized one? What role have self help ideologies and market based consumption played in how Americans prepare for disaster? Emily Ray is Associate Professor of Political Science at Sonoma State University. She's written widely on environmental politics and capitalist dynamics, and she's writing with Robert Kirsch a book tentatively titled Worst Case Scenario The Politics of Prepping in America. One chapter has the title Hunker in Your Bunker The Atomic Age and the Bunker Family. When Emily and I connected recently, I noted her use in that chapter of the term the nuclear world and asked, What marked its arrival?
1: It's a great question. And there's probably different answers to this. But, you know, I think a common starting point for the nuclear world is the 1945 Trinity atomic test bomb in New Mexico. And that I argue is kind of the beginning of an era when it became actually relatively common to detonate test bombs and some not test bombs, as we know, uh, in Japan. And so This got us into an era where having nuclear capability became very much part of the American identity and the identity of who we identified as our key enemies, the Soviet Union and its satellites in particular. Uh, And in addition to that, it became part of the atomic culture. So Las Vegas capitalized culturally on access to viewing uh, the test bombs and the mushroom clouds. They had viewing stations, they had something akin to a Miss America competition of like a beauty contest for like Miss Atomic Bomb or Miss Atomic Energy. I can't remember the name specifically of that contest um, but you could probably imagine what that was like. Uh, And so this became more than just something the military was doing, but something that was very much part of American culture.
0: So the US government was bent on uh, preparing on, on preparation, preparation for nuclear attack and possible a uh, nuclear disaster. What, what sorts of things did the feds try and get people and children and students to do?
1: They emphasized personal responsibility and being able to take care of yourself Uh, should you be subject to nuclear attack and be within range of being impacted by it. So children were taught using these animated videos. I think Bert the Turtle and this kind of song about ducking and covering and had images of children demonstrating throwing themselves against a retainer wall um, as if any of these things would actually protect you in a significant way from um, a nuke dropping next to you. But it was preparing children in classrooms, and if they were caught out in the open between home and school, what to do. It also, um, the federal government produced these pamphlets. Um, a lot of them were located at public libraries, telling families how to use stockpile for food and survival and first aid so you can survive for maybe two weeks at home, uh, under the assumption that any form of government would be unable to meet your needs during that time. So how do you take care of yourself during that time? Also protecting kind of the integrity of your culture, your religion, your unit as a family. Um, And people were encouraged to buy a bunker or take some kind of care to secure their spaces. But the federal government did not do is provide any large scale public provisioning. So they would not pay for personal bunkers or subsidize those. Uh, The most it did was sort of, half green light states to take some measures to uh, help make parking structures or public libraries safe for people to go to to ride out a bomb attack. Uh, But those were really a state by state operation, pretty poorly funded and was never particularly organized.
0: Well, why did the U.S. government decide not to fund the construction of emergency shelters of Personal shelters, and what did critics of a federally funded shelter program for the public argue that you know funding, giving public subsidies for shelter programs, what did they argue would turn the U.S. into?
1: It's really interesting because there was some disagreement about this. Um, some members of like federal Federal Civil Defense Administration uh, wanted to have some federally funded bunkers that people could especially suburban dwellers could go and buy a bunker that the federal government would subsidize or they would get money to do so but other members of the federal government including president uh, truman in particular were really concerned that this would engender too much dependence on the federal government that this was a matter of personal responsibility and that it would be far too close to what a communist society would do but that's what they did in the ussr was create publicly funded and available bunkers. And uh, because the reason we would, you know, go to some kind of nuclear annihilation is to prevent ourselves from becoming communists and becoming a socialized community, then we can't do the same kind of things they are doing to prepare against nuclear attack. So there was real fear of publicly funding and supporting bunkers and protection would erode American values and it would make us more susceptible to communist propaganda or communists taking over the country by merely threatening bomb attack. So it was trying to shore up this version of America that was worth going to nuclear brinkmanship over. Uh, And subsequently, it just pushed people to have to prepare individually as if there was no state to look out or protect them. But there's a market. So this opened up opportunity for the federal government to rely on and open up uh, a market for survival. And that's where people were expected to go if they were willing to take responsibility for themselves and their families.
0: I see. So you're suggesting that the federal civil defense authorities, I guess it was the Federal Civil Defense Administration, turned to the private sector to help turn federal plans and projects into reality talk about how that worked Uh, what happened between uh, the government and the corporations such that things like shelters were uh, made available to to people on sort of an individual basis
1: this is a pretty interesting part of the research i think Um, in 1951 there was a federal campaign called alert america and it was this convoy Uh, to educate and raise awareness across the country about preparing themselves for uh, biological, chemical, psychological, modern warfare. Um, And there were these displays, uh, including, I think, sample bunkers where you could go and tour it and see what it would look like to hunker down with your family in a well-appointed space. And it included the Boy Scouts of America and the Girl Scouts of America, um, who helped distribute the handbooks and pamphlets that the federal government had printed. Of course, they were very gendered. So women were encouraged to kind of continue their domestic role as the homemakers, uh, food providers, emotional support providers, even in the bunker. Uh, Men were meant to be on defense because people were highly discouraged from allowing neighbors, friends, anybody else inside the bunker. If you weren't part of that nuclear family unit, you were not encouraged to join the bunker. Uh, And so this kind of bunker market popped up and it was a little bit of a wild west of a market. So there were a lot of kind of fly by night operations that people would hire and they would just literally dig a hole in the ground, not show up again. And there was no recourse. Uh, Interestingly, a couple of the people who were involved in the federal civil defense projects who work for the federal government also invested in bunker companies and tried to capitalize on the new market for bunkers. I don't believe they made very much money off of that prospect. Um, There's some great articles in old time magazines that discuss how the public and how some of the bunker makers felt about this time. Uh, One of them said, my best salesmen are named Khrushchev and Kennedy. Um, And so they were sort of excited or invigorated in a way about the opportunity to use the political crisis to open this up. And because the federal government was sending this very clear message that individuals were responsible for educating themselves and then acting on that education, uh, they were completely comfortable with that market opening up, including for supplies. Uh, And the market kind of went bust. It turns out that not a lot of people were inclined to buy their own bunker. Um, A lot of people were Kind of convinced that if a nuclear bomb dropped, either they were not going to survive or they were not sure they would want to see what it looked like on the other side when they crawled out of their bunker. Uh, and they were more inclined to wait for the federal government to possibly subsidize this. Uh, so the first iteration of the private shelter market failed. It was not profitable, but that hasn't stopped it from proliferating today. There's now I think a fairly successful and booming uh, shelter market and shelter supplies and bug out supplies. So it didn't really go away.
0: Well, if the federal government was unwilling to federally fund shelter programs for the public, did it at least try and regulate the bunker industry, the bunker manufacturers, the bunker salespeople to ensure that, you know, people who needed and wanted a bunker or shelter for their own Uh, private use wouldn't be scammed or cheated or defrauded?
1: Not particularly. The federal agency, the Civil Defense Federal Agency, sent out some guidelines for manufacturers, but very few manufacturers followed those guidelines. It was mostly kind of a free-for-all for bunker companies to set up a sample, let people walk through. You could go to a mall and check out a bunker, uh, but there were all kinds of really wild and ineffective designs, some including windows um, that obviously you would probably not want glass windows in your bunker. Uh, some that were just uh, swimming pool companies that made uh, built-in swimming pools. They just converted those operations to, I think, plunk a shelter down in the same hole where you would ordinarily fill to make a swimming pool. So there really wasn't a lot besides just some loose set of guidelines that nobody was required to adhere to. So it wasn't a particularly regulated market, uh, which I think is kind of indicative of this kind of neoliberal turn that we start to see right around this time more broadly in the U.S., that it's really up to the market to fill in for these services if people want to avail themselves of it. It's not for the federal government to highly regulate or in some cases have a socialized, Uh, again, anything that even smacked of communism or socialism was not supposed to be part of uh, this effort to prevent that from hitting our shores.
0: Emily Ray joins us on Against the Grain. She is Associate Professor of Political Science at Sonoma State University. We're talking about a draft chapter of a forthcoming book Emily is co-authoring with Robert Kirsch. The book's working title is "Worst Case Scenario: The Politics of Prepping in America," prepping being short for, I believe, doomsday uh, preparations. In this case, we're talking about preparations for a nuclear attack or the fallout uh, that followed a dreaded nuclear attack on the U.S. Did the government and corporations do they promote a certain kind of? Um, Geographical location as a you know, as better than some other location for protecting oneself against nuclear disaster?
1: Yes, this was very much a suburban family's effort. You would need to have your own home that was freestanding, that wasn't attached to other buildings or other people's home units, and you would need to have backyard space, um, preferably a backyard and not a front yard, in part because you don't want everybody to know that you have a bunker. Uh, The bunker is supposed to be private and for the family. uh, And if it's advertised, essentially, if you have a mound or some other way that it's visible that you have a bunker, uh, then you're essentially inviting people to come and try to make use of your bunker uh, and maybe by violent means. So having a backyard was essential. So you can imagine the kinds of families that would even have the resources Uh, and the living situation to have a bunker to take part in this defense movement is a lot of white Christian families. Uh, And so this excludes people who are living in cities, who live in apartments and high rises. And it also excludes farmers and people living in rural areas. Uh, They had a different set of expectations and the federal government encouraged them to continue providing food and that kind of resource to the U.S. uh, so that they could continue to be part of the supply chain for bunker supplies and for survival, that they were supposed to uh, help maybe take in some refugees, but not too many because there's this fear of these so-called hordes of urban dwellers. Uh, There's a lot of racial coding in that. I'm sure uh, coming from places like Los Angeles that they would overtake these suburbs or even overtake rural communities uh, searching for food and shelter because they had, not done their due diligence to protect themselves. So the bunker and the bunker market was very much for the suburban nuclear family that was very representative of what the US wanted to project itself around the world internally and externally.
0: It's interesting because doomsday preparation was a sort of national activity, right? Was something the government was urging US society as a whole to engage in. And yet you're saying that with all this talk of preventing others from accessing and using my personal shelter, the shelter I've purchased and built for my family, that suggests a very, you know, cutthroat, every person for themselves kind of mentality.
1: Yeah, people were not very shy about that either. In a Time magazine article in 1961, someone was quoted as saying, uh, when I get my shelter finished, I'm going to mount the machine gun at the hatch to keep the neighbors out at the bomb falls. I'm deadly serious about this. If the stupid American public will not do what they have to save themselves, I'm not going to run the risk of not being able to use the shelter I've taken the trouble to provide to save my own family. And that sentiment was echoed through other people across this article in Time, uh, people specifying the kinds of guns that they would use why they would have them in their shelters. And it was always to keep people out. Um, I believe a Twilight Zone episode was about this as well. Um, Somebody who was a a religious leader wrestling with whether or not to let their neighbor into their shelter. Um, So this was in the public culture very much about what to do if confronted with people who were in need of sheltering and you're the one with the bunker. And there was this tension between Los Angeles and Las Vegas. Their civil defense coordinators were both posturing that if, again, these hordes, whoever they may be, would come fleeing from major urban centers, uh, that they would have um, all kinds of people at the ready, officials and reserve policemen uh, ready with guns uh, to send them right back out at the threat of violence. So it's, interesting that part of what the U.S. is trying to do is protect itself and protect who they think they are, a country of neighbors in suburbia who are living by Christian values uh, that have this kind of liberal democratic ethos and commitments. And yet there's also this message that, yeah, but if I need to, I'm going to shoot you. Um, because I would rather you die than try to provision for you as well.
0: And because much of your essay and your work is to draw parallels between historical situations and today, uh, you know, does this kind of anxiety exist in contemporary prepper movements, you know, movements for, for doomsday preparation with preppers worried about being invaded or overwhelmed by those who are unprepared for catastrophes like environmental or climate catastrophes?
1: I say absolutely. Uh, I mean, I hate to just use popular cultural references exclusively, but the National Geographic show on doomsday prepping, which I know is not representative of everybody who participates in prepping, uh, but I think it gives some window into seeing how some people have approached this. Only one of us can survive a zero-sum way of thinking about writing out some kind of disaster um, and again, this isn't so much the, the work of the, the book and the project is not to gawk at people who participate, but rather to try to understand how prepping and bunkering is baked into American politics. This is not just an activity of of people doing what we might consider fringe or kind of eccentric or radical activity. Uh, and in fact, this is very much part of who we are as a country and our politics. Uh, so when I think about what modern bunkering looks like, there's a pretty robust market that is up and down the socioeconomic scales. There's still kind of very a DIY or do-it-yourself ethos of uh, building your own bunker, perhaps burying an old container, a shipment container or something similar and doing that work yourself. And then there's ways to buy safe locations that are maybe rustic, but still safe, uh, the very rich have helicopters ready. They have probably bought themselves citizenship and passports like Peter Thiel uh, to New Zealand so that they can just go and not even have any legal complications if they want to flee the country in the event of a massive disaster they don't think there's easy recovering from. Uh, And there's this kind of luxury bunker market. So you can get like a retrofit silo that has home theaters, swimming pools, space to have Uh, doctors and medical staff uh, that live with you. Presumably, I guess you have arrangements of networks of people who will come bunker with you. I'm not too sure of the finer points of how you logistically coordinate that. Uh, There are people who are sort of, I think in the Joe Rogan vein of um, podcast hosts who have uh, these kind of bunker businesses where they promise to coordinate the logistics and help with preparation, run drills, and have these compounds that are supposed to be at the ready And you buy in kind of a, I'll say a timeshare, although that's not exactly accurate, um, but kind of a timeshare model of buying in and having space in these compounds where you can go and you know that they're weaponized and secure and they're only for you and your provisions are available. And so this is this real marketplace of opportunities to protect yourself.
0: Yeah and so you write that doomsday bunkering was a class stratified activity and in many ways of course still is. You note how the current luxury bunker market is is among other things about ways to conspicuously consume.
1: Right you can still have your class markers while writing out a doomsday or cataclysmic event which i think is kind of an impressive commitment to one's class status but this is also evidence that we are still thinking about uh, what it is to survive these kinds of dangers with the same uh, neoliberal class stratified and it's acceptable to be class stratified. These are the things we want to have survive is the ability to still consume conspicuously. That survival is a, kind of a conspicuous act of consumption that you were able to consume your way to survival uh, and other people were not. And so instead of this being a demonstration of a state that failed to protect its citizens or its residents, it's evidence that some people are better equipped and made the right consumer choices and had access to those things, and they are the deserving ones, the ones that ought to have survived, which gets us, I think, into some pretty uh, dangerous territory about who we think should survive uh, attack or, drawing these parallels, climate change. So instead of looking exclusively at Uh, The threat of nuclear attack, we can look at climate change as the sort of parallel, slow moving, um, multi point crisis. And so, who should and gets to survive that is, I think, running along similar logics.
0: I'm C.S. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Emily Ray joins us. She teaches political science at Sonoma State University. Her expertise is in environmental political theory and politics with a particular interest in the intersections of climate change, technology, outer space policy, land use disputes, and social theory. And she and Robert Kirsch, who teaches at Arizona State University, have a book under contract with Columbia University Press. Its working title is Worst Case Scenario, The Politics of Prepping in America We're Talking About a draft chapter that Emily will contribute to that book. You read about three prominent U.S. officials, George Cannon, a U.S. diplomat, John Foster Dulles, Secretary of State under Eisenhower, and Henry Stimson, Secretary of War under Truman. They were worried about the character and moral fiber of Americans. For what reason?
1: They have some anxieties about what it would look like for the U.S. to be prepared and that our attitudes about preparation betray this erosion of American values. And this erosion of American values includes people being feminized, men being feminized in particular by industrial work, office jobs. Uh, And an erosion of Christian values with a more multicultural, multi religious world and too much religious tolerance in the US. That there was this romanticization of the, the independent farmer of Jefferson's ideal democracy. And that these were families and people who are passing us and they're falling out of US culture and being replaced with these men who aren't sufficiently masculine women who aren't sufficiently feminine, they're not taking up their homemaking the way they ought, and that they're not teaching their children proper American values. All of this they argue makes the U.S. vulnerable to communist propaganda or socialist propaganda because there is nothing holding us back from sliding into what they consider a very dangerous ideology. Uh, That would spell the end of what it is to be American, which would be the end of the U.S. as a state. Uh, and so they have you know some variation in what they 're concerned about, but these are the general contours of what they 're afraid of, and so they 're worried that the preparation itself for nuclear attack, not just the on the face of it nuclear attack, is part of what shores us up as real Americans or not uh, and so they 're concerned that fear itself, the panic around being unprepared about potential nuclear attack, is going to leave Americans even more vulnerable because they're not gonna be reasonable or rational or thinking clearly or being able to fall back on their good sturdy values as Americans. And they're gonna be open to all kind of influence about what would make them safe again. And so these men are all really concerned about infusing kind of their more conservative, moral leadership into the way that the US thinks about itself in relation to nuclear attack, um, which is one of the reasons why preparation for potential bombs and shelters were so strongly encouraged to be a nuclear family affair rather than something that was collectivized.
0: And you're also suggesting that this may have guided or influenced an effort by the feds and by, you know, state and local governments um, to focus on psychological responsiveness to to try and address people's fears, make them less fearful?
1: Yes, there was this real fear. Um, Val Peterson, who at one point was a director of the Federal Civil Defense Administration in 1957 to 1961, wrote a piece in Collier's uh, saying that, you know, the most effective way to win this war was to think of stopping the panic about nuclear war and war against the communists, rather than worrying about what would keep us from getting into that kind of hot war at all. And so he argued that panic is more dangerous to national security than the bombs themselves. And so if citizens maintain a level of preparedness at all times, they will be able to marshal their fear and even conquer that fear. So they will not be susceptible to communist propaganda because they are too fearful. Uh, So shoring up your home fortress was a way to be patriotic was a way to uphold American values and to prevent communism from having an inroad into the fearful American mind. So the concern was a lot less, we don't want to lose lives, we don't want to have the literal and figurative fallout from nuclear attack, but rather we don't want to become a kind of people that falls to communism because we're not able to rationally and reasonably control our fear. Um, Again, this also reinforces the nuclear family model. Uh, Strong male head of household has his responsibilities to lead the family. Uh, The woman who is the subordinate uh, in the family would be able to channel her anxious nature into preparing a home in a bunker for the family and model for the children that they are safe and okay. And if they hold their line and be good patriotic Americans and to be prepared then we will survive. So preparedness became its own moral value, its own virtue, um, rather than thinking about what it is to be at this brink of um, possibly tremendous loss of life and environmental damage.
0: Was there a double movement, Emily, in the sense of the government realizing that fear could be a real problem and thus wanting to allay people's fears? But on the other hand, we know that governments often play on people's fears, manipulate fear to achieve certain ends. So was there an effort to simultaneously calm people down and work people up so that they would be more likely to submit to and obey government directives?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the ways we see that is with the test bombs. So the U.S. really did a number bombing itself. Um, We have really bombed ourselves very thoroughly, hundreds and hundreds of times over, especially in the American West, in Nevada, New Mexico, Arizona, and Utah. And the U.S. set up these what are called colloquially doom towns or survival towns. Um, In 1950, the Atomic Energy Commission chose the Las Vegas bombing and gunnery range to be a proving ground for atomic testing. And so they started these, obviously these big above ground tests before they were required to make them um, below ground tests. But in addition to just testing the bombs and to test the strength and control we had over them, they also set up these uh, model towns to see what would happen to the trappings of average Americana when it was exposed to nuclear attack. And this wasn't just to see what happened to the objects but also to serve as this warning to families If you don't take our warning about being prepared, conquering your fear, always being in a state of readiness for attack, then this could be your family in your town. So these survival towns were backed by corporate sponsors because a lot of corporations are pretty excited for the opportunity to have their car, uh, their housing or construction unit, their oven, uh, be part of these to say, hey, look, our car can survive this you know, unit of blast pressure. Uh, and so these doom towns were, had houses that were stocked with mannequins that were even dressed. Uh, some clothing companies had their clothing on the mannequins so they could see what happened to flammability and, you know, like spoiler alert, nothing did a great job of surviving exposure to these bombs. Um, you know, companies that had food wanted to have their food tested. Uh, and so, These were recorded and shown to the general public. You know, this is what it looked like in this nice little town with stocked mannequins prior to a bomb. And this is what it looked like afterwards. And you would see mannequins missing limbs and, you know, the general disorder you would expect in a model home that had been subjected to the force of a bomb. And this was, hey, this is your warning that this could be you if you don't um, take our advice. Of course, the advice was read our pamphlets, look to the market, prepare yourself. This is your responsibility. If you don't take responsibility for yourself and we've allowed the market to flourish to give you the opportunity to do so, then whatever happens is on you. And so it was a very interesting way of scaring the public to get them to conquer their fears, to be more prepared. So it's a very um, dialectical thing, this tension that the federal government is, is holding the public in.
0: You've referred to neoliberalism a number of times, the neoliberal uh, ethos or attitude. Um, How do you define neoliberalism?
1: I look at neoliberalism starting in kind of the early 20th century in the 1920s. We start to see um, European and American, some call them thinkers, economists start to come together together and really start to think about what it looks like to have a state and economy in relation to one another that's different from liberalism and liberal democracy. So there's this real emphasis on individual freedom that's linked to market freedom. So a market that is relatively unbounded by regulation is one that allows people to exercise their freedom uh, to make market choices. And when the market is not very regulated, then you can find the true value of something because its price point will reflect what it is worth to people rather than a regulated market where subsidies uh, and taxation and other kinds of forms of control of trade and production would change the price point and therefore sort of muddy the clarity of the information that the market provides. This also means that there's a commitment to upholding private property. Uh, that people can own means of production independently, that it's not socialized or state-owned production, and that people can make their own independent decisions with their own wealth or money and what they choose to produce. And so there's kind of this supposedly direct relationship between producer and consumer. Uh, and that the state limits itself to protecting the market from undue influence. Uh, Some people like David Harvey, who have been, uh, he's a geographer, a Marxist geographer, and he's been talking about and helping explicate what neoliberalism is for a very long time. Um, In a great volume he wrote some time ago, an introduction to neoliberalism, he describes some of the tensions with this that even though neoliberalism has this claim to a fairly unfettered market, it also is very dependent on a state to protect those markets uh, and to protect the influence of. Uh, democratic decisions about maybe regulating or unregulating some parts of the market. So the state often acts as a protector or guarantor of the market to be able to flourish in certain ways. Uh, And of course, this depends on who holds political power. Uh, So not everybody has the same access to be able to make decisions about what it looks like to have market relations. So we can see the imprint of Uh, colonialism and the imprint of uh, global superpower rearrangement on organizations like the World Trade Organization, the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund. Uh, They all have these um, really influential boards and people who are decision makers that actually do quite a bit to help regulate uh, and stabilize markets. So neoliberalism holds a lot of tension itself. The reason I talk about it so much is that In about the 1950s, and as we especially see towards the 1970s, neoliberalism as a political ideology really starts to take hold in the United States. And in Great Britain, we see Margaret Thatcher and here in the US, uh, Ronald Reagan, are both kind of ushering in um, what we would consider a more neoliberal period for both of those countries and the subsequent decisions that they make about uh, individualism and finding our individual expression, who we are should all be filtered and run through the market, rather than thinking about ourselves as democratic citizens, uh, who should be having a lot of influence over policy, including economic policy.
0: That's the voice of Emily Ray. She is Associate Professor of Political Science at Sonoma State University. And again, we're talking about a a draft chapter of a forthcoming book. Emily is co-writing with Robert Kirsch. The book is a uh, political history of doomsday prepping in the US from the late 1800s through the early 21st century it will come out from Columbia University Press I'm CS and this is against the Grain on Pacifica Radio So you've begun already to talk about this but maybe you could share a little bit more about why and how as you write the bunker mentality established during the Cold War smoothed the road toward the neoliberal approach to climate change.
1: Sure. So again, I see a lot of parallels between concern for and preparation and anticipation of a nuclear world and approaching climate change in similar ways. Part of preparing for nuclear attack started to peter out Uh, by the time we get into the late 1960s and into the 1970s, there's a little less concern that at any moment, uh, the Soviet Union is going to drop the bomb on the US. It's not that all of the concerns dissolved and all of the agencies dissolved, but rather they became transitional towards preparing more generally for disaster that could happen at any time, not just nuclear strike in this one particular conflict. And so we see a lot of these civil defense agencies start to get restructured and out of them emerges uh, the Federal Emergency Management, FEMA, uh, that we have today. And FEMA is not exclusively focused on the bomb, but rather a general emergency preparedness and disaster response organization. And so the way that we start to transition is, you know, we should be aware that disaster could strike any time. It's not just from wartime and that you know, we should be prepared for anything. And so when we start to see climate disaster really start to hit the public attention. So in the 1960s, especially in the late 1960s, there was the oil spill off the coast of Santa Barbara. Uh, there was the Love Canal disaster and all the subsequent grassroots organizing. And it became more and more evident that environmental disaster and catastrophe were not just these kind of one-time events but we should be ready for the storm we should be ready for the tornado uh, and then when we get to hurricane katrina and we start to see the increase of frequency intensity and type of storms and weather patterns that are related to a changing climate uh, then it becomes evident that disaster response is going to continue to be personal responsibility with some loose guidance from uh, federal disaster management agencies. And we saw with FEMA a really poor response to Hurricane Katrina. Many communities, especially minority communities, were left exposed, that the FEMA trailers were unsafe for living in. Uh, The federal government and state governments had really poor, violent, toxic responses. Uh, And so that feeds into this, well, if you really want to protect yourself, you really have to protect yourself on your own because the market probably provides better resources than the federal government can. So when we get into uh, bunkering, it's also not just for the threat of nuclear attack, but when there's a storm or uh, some other climate change events that you have a safe place to go to ride that out. Um, You could think about fires or heat events and that gives you a safe place for you and your family.
0: You make in this chapter the important case that preparing for disaster in the U.S. Uh, was profoundly anti-democratic. It did not encourage democratic decision-making. And so then you posit, as maybe many of us have, that the answer is more democracy, that we need to inject democracy back into the system, appeal for more democracy. And you say that, uh, well, there are at least some thinkers that don't necessarily think that that's the solution.
1: Yeah, there's sort of two ways to look at that. There's a real growing concern and some growing evidence of this kind of environmental or green authoritarianism that some people actually advocate for a strong leader that doesn't listen to climate change deniers or allow the public to interfere with taking strong approach to forcing change to improve climate change and authoritarianism. I certainly don't advocate for authoritarianism, green or otherwise. Uh, but this is one of the the frightening things that if mechanisms and advocates of democracy are failing us, it really opens up space for some pretty dangerous approaches to quote unquote, going green that are anti-democratic in ways that are probably pretty frightening and threatening to the global population. On the other side, if we think about continuing to embrace democracy and say we need to be more democratic in our approach, probably need to think more carefully about what exactly that means. Just saying democracy, democracy, democracy is like clicking your heels three times and hoping that gets you home. we probably need to be a lot more specific about what we're asking for. So there are some really great critics um, Jody Dean and uh, the late Sheldon Wollin remind us that there's a lot of different ways to slice into the conversation of democracy. There's critique of deliberative democracy or democracy that is caught up in strictly um, messing with the mechanisms. So how do we make more space for conversation? How do we make sure that there's more town hall meetings? So, The end goal of democracy then is to have process and instead we should really be thinking about what are the political goals that we're trying to accomplish through democratic means. Uh, So not getting caught up in logistics tweaking, uh, but rather think about what it is that we want a democracy to do and allow for. And Wallen talks about constitutional democracy as really creating this great wedge between people and their ability to express and discuss, argue, advocate in public and to affect public policy and what the state does uh, by actually protecting constitutional mechanisms that limit or check how much democratic activity is permitted within the state. So our three branch system, a lot of that is to prevent too much democracy from creeping into a democracy uh, that the rabble doesn't have too much say in the decisions that are made. Um, Of course, this is a particularly discouraging and interesting week to think about the role of checks and balances in our Supreme Court. Uh, And so thinking about what democracy is, is it just a matter of getting more and the right representatives to continue to divine and distill what it is that the people want while working within constitutional mechanisms. For some of these thinkers, All of that is a lot of wheel spinning and actually a lot of preventing people from actually engaging in democratic process and having outcomes that are maybe radical or forceful but are still achieved democratically.
0: One example you cite in this chapter of a convergence point between the sort of eternal preparation for Cold War hostilities on the one hand and the near eternal presence of environmental disaster on the other— is the Marshall Islands in the Pacific Ocean, in the Central Pacific. What happened and is happening now to the Marshall Islands?
1: The Marshall Islands are really tough to discuss as well because of how much violence uh, was part of this. Uh, But the U.S. government conducted nuclear tests at Bikini and Eniwetaka tolls from 1946 to 1958 Uh, And they did so while they had colonial control over those islands. Uh, They did not warn the population. They did a really poor job of provisioning to protect people who were living there and the environment. Um, And it was incredibly destructive. Uh, People are still suffering from long-term exposure and generational exposure to the fallout from those bombs. Uh, Of course, the U.S. returned some of the kind of independence to the Marshall Islands while also maintaining access to testing sites, but essentially saying all the cleanup uh, and management of uh, nuclear waste is stuck with you. And so that was part of this Compact of Free Association signed in 1983. Uh, And so it provided for the settlement of claims uh, that Marshall Islands Uh, residents and citizens could make against the U.S. government. Uh, There is a large concrete dome, Runet Dome, where a lot of the waste was basically shoveled by U.S. military personnel who were also not told what they were handling or given safe ways to do that work. Uh, And so this affected a lot of people. And so that dome is leaking into the waters now. And so This is becoming this ongoing, multi-generational and with no end in sight, uh, environmental disaster that comes out of this frenzy to test and demonstrate power of uh, our nuclear capacities during the Cold War. So this is a real convergence site. Uh, There's some really important and incredible activism from Marshall Islanders who are doing work to raise awareness and to fight for their rights, um, speaking at the UN. Uh, So it's important to um, acknowledge and respect agency of people who are doing this work. And so I'm certainly not speaking on behalf, Uh, but rather looking at this as an example of how these two activities of the U.S. government getting into this fear and panic about the nuclear war and demonstration of power, while also displacing the responsibility and burdens for that onto people, especially people who have no democratic power to challenge the US state. And that this is not so dissimilar in the way that the US government today continues to displace the burdens of climate change and preparation onto people um, who may not have the means or the inclination. And it doesn't matter if people do or don't have the means to bunker or to find ways to protect themselves against climate change, because that's not the point. The point is, that nobody should be exposed to these kinds of uh, hazards and catastrophes to begin with, and that the role of the government is uh, to protect citizens. That's part of the liberal fantasy of what a state is meant to do. And even if we subscribe to that liberal fantasy, we're not even doing that much within the state.
0: So, Emily, we've been talking about just a, a small portion of your forthcoming book with Robert Kirsch called tentatively worst case scenario, The Politics of Prepping in America. Uh, What else in the short time remaining do you want to tell us uh, about the book?
1: I think one of the points that uh, Robert and I are trying to make in this work is not, for one, not that bunkering is silly or weird. Actually, bunkering can make some good sense when we look at uh, how exposed we are by the state to the things the state does and the markets do to make the world increasingly inhospitable. So it's not to say bunkering is a silly thing and we shouldn't be doing it, but rather why do we live in a world in which that is the thing that makes sense to do to protect ourselves against declining conditions of life uh, globally and in the U.S.? And so we're not just talking about the physical bunker itself in the backyard, but we're using that as an example to trace out not just the bunker, but bunkerization. So what does it mean to become a people that bunker and that we create these fortresses at our home? So we're no longer advocating, we are not, but the state is no longer saying, oh, buy a bunker to put in your backyard, but rather we have a marketplace that tells us you need your Alexa and your Google and your world of surveillance technologies to help fortify your home with your filters, your solar panels, ways to survive grid failure, ways to survive um, water pollution and air pollution uh, and that this is becoming this bunkering process rather than just the actual act of producing a bunker. And so how does this become the new valence of American politics that is not really discussed very much?
0: Emily Ray, Associate Professor of Political Science at Sonoma State University. Again, we've been talking about part of a forthcoming book. Emily is co-authoring with Robert Kirsch. The book's working title is Worst Case Scenario, The Politics of Prepping in America. It will be published by Columbia University Press. Uh, Emily, thank you so much for your work and for joining us today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure.
0: And this is CS, suggesting the important thing is not to stop questioning, as Albert Einstein once said, and we hope you'll join us next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. You can visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio resources and more. You can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio, and you can follow us on Twitter at Radio Against.